it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 121. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to talk about Benjamin Graham and growth. Uh, Andrew has been on a bit of a Ben Graham kick lately. He's been writing some great blog posts about some of the stuff that he's been discovering in the Intelligent Investor as well as security analysis. And we thought this would be a perfect time for us to talk a little bit about growth and Ben Graham. We teased this a little bit a few weeks ago, and tonight is the night. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start us off and we can have our little conversation? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think it's always a good idea. Once you are established and, and you kind of have a good base of knowledge when it comes to investing, I think it's good to reread stuff because now that you have a new context, you have a greater understanding, you can really pick up things that maybe you didn't pick up the first time. So, you know, a few select books, whether that's Benjamin Graham, obviously a huge He's an investing legend, right? Not only was he Warren Buffett's mentor, um, he taught Warren Buffett at Columbia. He also had his own investment fund and returned 17% per year. Quite quite a nice performance. And I think it was over like a 30-year time period. So not only was he a great teacher, but he also walked the walk and made some fantastic returns. And so his books... Uh, his most popular one, The Intelligent Investor, that one's probably one of the best-selling investment books of all time. That one's obviously recommended by many, many people. Um, Security Analysis is one of those that's literally like a textbook. I'm holding it in my hand right now, and it's uh, 700, almost 800 pages. <laughs> um, just reading it, like I, I will admit, I haven't read the entire thing through. There's some stuff in there that's outdated. There's stuff on bonds, which isn't really applicable. Um, so, you know, it's one of those, like, um, I kind of think of it like the Bible where um, I don't even know if pastors have read it all the way through, right? But you pick different parts of it and you try to learn the best you can and try to take the best parts. So when I think of security analysis, I think of that. Um, and so I found a couple of things when I was somehow I stumbled on this rabbit hole and I found some things he talked about with growth that I never really 
noticed before. And I think when people talk about Benjamin Graham, you know, when we've talked about Benjamin Graham, it's always margin of safety, uh, a lot of talk on the price, the valuation of a stock, um, the price to book ratio, you know, buying stocks with more assets rather than less because asset values tend to fluctuate less than earnings, right? Um, the fact that Mr. Market is irrational and the stock market can price things wildly differently depending on how it feels any given day. That's another concept really popularized by Ben Graham. But you know, he actually did write some stuff about growth and, and I don't really see it talked about much. And I think it's something that we can definitely learn from. The thing with growth, and I think we really got to tread carefully here, is there's so many different ways to talk about growth and to think about growth. And there's so many easy ways to, in hindsight, say that you have a better growth model than than somebody else. I think um, you can just look across the span of the stock market universe today, five years ago, 10 years ago, and you can see that it's obvious based on how some stocks are priced so wildly different that everybody's methods of calculating growth are a lot different. Uh, which is what makes value investing nice is because there's a lot less discrepancies. I think if if I look at the stock and if Dave looks at the stock, I think we can generally agree if if one looks undervalued or not. Um, and not just to me and Dave, but like throughout a lot of value investors, you'll tend to see not a mirror image, but similar grouping of stocks where it's like, yeah, we can kind of agree those are undervalued. The growth thing is a completely different story and you'll see it as an example, the difference between Twitter and Facebook, right? Two of the biggest social media giants, I think, at least for my limited kind of anecdotal experience, I think Twitter's maybe more popular among... I don't know how you call it, the millennial demographic or the tech savvy kind of um, younger demographic that still has a lot of money, right? I think Twitter is more popular than Facebook now, but Twitter used to be valued kind of like Facebook when they IPO'd and now Twitter is only at a 14 PE and Facebook's like double that. So, you know, well, what happens? There's just a lot of different opinions on growth because you're buying a a stock with no dividend that just recently IPO like Twitter or Facebook, you're probably buying it for growth. And there's a whole segment of the, the market that does that. And so that's why there can be so many different opinions on growth and why I don't want to say that my methods or Benjamin Graham's methods or any other person's methods are the best for evaluating growth. I think that's something that constantly changes and something that you kind of need to reevaluate time and time again. So not to be like Debbie Downer on it, I think you can you can buy a lot of undervalued stocks and have great returns. A lot of times with undervalued stocks, you're getting growth and the general stock market grows 10% a year over a very long time period. Uh, I, I did a study last year, I think in the summer on my YouTube channel about earnings growth and EPS growth and how that looked for stocks over the very, very long time period. And it was somewhere around 6 to 7%. And then I think if you add 
inflation, you get that last 10%. It was something like that. So like as an average companies will grow and when they when a when an industry is dying it starts to become obvious and you can see it in the financials so i wouldn't like bash my head about growth and and feel panicked about like man i just don't have the best model for evaluating growth because it's going to be different i mean the way twitter or facebook they're so widely adopted now right the way that they're going to grow might be from a profitability standpoint, how are they going to monetize their platform better versus, um, let's say, a company that's starting out with a product that is regional. Let's say it's like a furniture store and, and they have maybe the West Coast covered, but they don't have stores on the East Coast. And so their growth strategy is going to be very domestic. They're going to be aggressively opening stores and, and attracting customers, whereas Somebody like Facebook and Twitter might not be, and that's going to change on every di- every different industry. So these numbers are never going to be like a panacea. But I think from a big picture kind of systematic viewpoint, I think there's a lot of benefits to be said about trying to make some, I guess, takeaways from from how companies have grown in the past, how they'll continue to grow, and stuff that we kind of constantly allude to. Um, and maybe can can dive in depth for it today. I guess before I jump in any further, is there anything you wanted to add, or should I keep rolling and falling down this rabbit hole? I would keep going down the rabbit hole, baby. Okay. <laughs> All right. So before I start spouting just craziness, let's let's stick to some sort of format. So first, let's talk about where Graham, what Graham has said, what Ben Graham has said about growth and. I just picked out two quotes, which I find really fascinating. Um, Again, just kind of buried just nonchalantly in the text. And I think it's really cool. So he's talking about the sections called long-term studies of income and balance sheet position. He says, quote, balance sheets and income statements for selected years spaced, say, 10 years apart, will do this job quite well for most purposes, especially when comparisons are to be made between two or more enterprises. So a couple takeaways from that and something that I've tried to talk about in, you'll see if, if you subscribe to the e-letter in the archives, this is something I've talked about before. He touches briefly on this in The Intelligent Investor too. He says when he likes to look at growth or even price to earnings, he likes to look at seven to 10 years. The reasoning for that, you know, seven-year, ten-year time period, uh, several reasons. You know, obviously, earnings fluctuate from year to year. There can also be cyclical natures of industries and stocks and, and businesses, and then you know you have the workings inside the market as competitors enter and leave. So you know, any one year and any one time period can be skewed and not give you the big picture because of so many different factors. So. Go looking over a longer time period, it won't fix everything, but it can help kind of smooth some things out. And particularly, I like how he mentions comparisons made to two or more enterprises. So in the book, he he has a great example, and he he kind of does a side by side of two companies. Now, obviously, this was written. I think the first edition was something like 1933 or, or some something in that time period. So. We're talking about companies like utility, public utility companies were big back then. Railroad companies were big back then. Obviously, not having the same kind of growth picture today. 
uh, as maybe back then, but he did a side by side on a couple of those and he showed how when you're looking at the growth of let's say earnings or let's say book value to look side by side that can help um kind of differentiate one competitor from the other and i think it's kind of a good idea to to compare it to like the S&P 500 too this is something i've kind of been chewing on lately you can you can compare and you know if you see Outperformance or underperformance, you know, obviously you'd want to see outperformance. Obviously you want to see like double digit growth, but I think maybe if you're looking at a stock and it's at least kept up with the S&P, for example, I'm, I'm looking at a stock right now. It's one that's in the portfolio. I'm considering adding it. Um, it's super beaten down. The, the, uh, the way Wall Street's perceiving it, kind of the general sentiment that was the word i was thinking for that the sentiment around it is really negative the trade war is really really um causing people to feel very pessimistic about the future among other big developments and big competitors that have come in and and taken a lot of market share but in in the time period since the great recession this stock has kept up with the s&p 500 as far as uh, EPS growth goes, and not only that, they have all—they're also trading at crazy good valuation right now. So I'm talking about like a over three percent yield, a price to earnings ratio that I believe is single digits. It, it's been a very volatile stock in the past couple months, which can also kind of make a value investor kind of lick his lips a little bit. But uh, it's a—it's just very low, very low valuation. Plus, you know. Maybe it's not the best grower, but if it's keeping up with the S&P and it's valued this low, you know, what happens if not only the valuation catches up, but then maybe if, if they're able to take a growth picture and, and do better than the market, now all of a sudden we might see gains not only from the difference in intrinsic value, but also from, from business growth. So I think that can maybe be one example. You can take comparisons between two different companies or you can compare it to the S&P or you can just compare it to let's say the historical S&P. So maybe the S&P we know, like I said, six to 7% would be a good metric for long-term EPS. So if I have a stock that maybe has 14% a year over a 10-year period, I feel better about those. So I also did, as I was in this rabbit hole, I kind of looked at some of the the previous best picks of the e-leather. You know, why are they doing so well? Why are they doubling or, or, you know, getting like 50% gains uh, over a short time period. And sure enough, many of them had really, really good over a 10 year, seven to 10 year time period, really good earnings growth and book value, um, book value per share growth as well, uh, compared to the S&P and also just on a relative, uh, absolute basis, just you know, double digit and and really good. So I don't want to say like that that's, again, a perfect metric. I also have a couple of stocks in there where they also had double digit earnings and, and book value growth, and then they haven't done as well. So I tend to, when I look at growth, I want to see that growth, but I think it's a fine balance that you have to make between all of the different factors. So you have growth, 
you have growth over a long time period, growth over a short time period, growth over maybe what's projected for the industry or how you see the qualitative factors of it. Kind of like going back to that other example, if a market's saturated, like Facebook or Twitter, maybe we feel good about it because there's a lot of room for them to kind of go into other ventures, or maybe we don't feel good because it's going to be hard for them to, to kick up profits versus, you know, the, the furniture store example where it seems like it could be pretty easy for them to grow. Just all they have to do is expand the number of stores, you know, but it's not, that's not like you have to take it on a case by case basis. Cause there's so many different ways you could get growth globally, domestically, with a business model, with a with a whole new business venture, so many different things. But I think it's good to add that to your decision making of what's the valuation on this, what's the growth been in the past. Particularly, don't just look at year over year, one year time period like a lot of Wall Street likes to do. Look at maybe a seven to ten year time period, and then also factor in the valuation and maybe some qualitative factors. And within all of that, I think you get a generally good idea of if you think this stock will grow in addition to maybe taking some profits from the difference in intrinsic value. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? 
Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I like all that. That I think that's really interesting. Uh, I guess one thing that kind of popped into my head while you're talking about that, when you're evaluating growth of a company, uh, when you're looking at the different businesses that you're wanting to invest in, do you look at the cyclicality of the business or uh, also would you look at the market cap size of the company versus a smaller cap company? i.e., let's say you're looking at some of the dividend aristocrats, which are companies that have been around for a long time because obviously they've been paying a dividend for 25 years. So somebody like, let's say, I'll just pick a company, Johnson & Johnson, for example. Is their evaluation of growth different than Facebook's would be? I want to touch on the first part of your question Okay. First, because I think that's that's a key part I missed, and then we'll we'll talk on the second. Okay. So something that Graham mentioned, which I forgot to say, he talks about when you're looking at this long term growth, because he said ten years apart, but like about right, not not it doesn't have to be an exact science. He talks about how there were other time periods where he just I think it was like the Great Depression, and then let's look at the Great Depression and how companies kind of came out of that versus how they were when they were in it. So he says, you know, if the market as a whole um, kept earnings flat or actually saw a decrease in earnings, but the company you're looking at kept earnings flat. So on an absolute basis, that doesn't sound great, right? Three or four years of, of no growth. No investor likes to hear that. But because comparatively, cyclically, right? The, the economy was in a downtrend, and so they kind of treaded water until the economy recovered. So from a cyclical basis, that's where comparing to the S&P can be very useful. And then to his point, too, about comparing against two or more companies that are maybe in the same industry, different companies will be cyclical at different times. So depending on how commodities are going, the oil companies might be down when the rest of the market's up, or they might be up when the rest of the market is down. Or um, a stock like Caterpillar, which uh, you know, they're, I think they're, they're very... If you see... I remember seeing this on, on a Mad Money episode years ago with Jim Cramer. He said, uh, Caterpillar is a good indicator for kind of how economic growth is, is is moving in like say the next three or six months because um as their demand goes up then it's likely that there's a lot of building going on something like that don't quote me on it, it like i said it was like four years ago but you know there, there's examples of that throughout every different industry and every different company and so it's like man I don't really like the fact that this company only grew, let's say, 4% over the past three years. But, you know, compared to competitors, it's maybe 2% higher than the rest of them. And, you know, maybe the industry is just in a downturn and it's kind of a natural part of that industry. And so historically, they've kind of seen these swings. And so looking into the future, it should be fine. And so maybe in one instance, I'm disqualifying a company because they have less than S&P growth, but maybe in another instance, 
I'm saying it's okay and I really like the valuation. And so again, case by case basis. So I think that's how you can kind of think of the cyclicality of it. Um, do you kind of think of cyclicality in a similar way or a different way when you look at stocks? Uh, yeah, I definitely look at it that way. I definitely look at the what's going on in the particular industry as well as what's going on in a particular um, market as far as uh, the market's not the right word, as far as the economy is going just as a general rule and try to think about how it relates to each other. So if you're looking at, you know, if you're trying to compare apples to apples and you're looking at, you know, I'll pick something I'm familiar with. If I'm looking at the banking industry and I'll look at that as a general whole and I'll look at all the companies within that as their own, I guess, separate entity or world. But then you also have to kind of take into consideration what's going on in the rest of the United States or the rest of the world as far as the economies go. So, for example, if the economy is doing well and interest rates are rising, then that is going to be a boon for the banks. Whereas if the economy is stagnant or is possibly sliding into a recession, then the rates are going to be going down, which is not going to be good for banks in the long run. And same would apply with with insurance companies, depending on how they generate their money, whether it's through revenues or whether it's through investing. So it really kind of depends on how you're analyzing the company. So I try to look at apples to apples and then kind of compare that to other things, but you have to take into consideration the the cyclicality of it. Or, you know, another aspect of that is think of retail. When you think of retail type businesses, whether it's Amazon or anybody else that's trying to compete against them, Walmart, for example, they, their, the majority of their income is going to be earned in the holiday season. You know, they just, they see a huge spike in, sales because of all the Christmas presents and, you know, the, or everybody's celebrating and blah, blah, blah. So that has a huge impact at that particular time of the year on those particular businesses. Whereas say the dog days of the summer, you just, you, you're not going to see as much revenue growth from them in that time period, but you still have to compare it to other businesses that are going through the same kind of thing. Because if you, if you extrapolate those businesses out and you just look at it as a standalone entity and go, wow, that's amazing. Look at that growth at, you know, at this time of the year, that's awesome. But then maybe if you compare it to other peers at the same time period, you go, eh, okay, well, maybe that's not so great. <laughs> uh, so I think that's one thing you do have to do is try to be cognizant of what else is going on around that particular business and not think of it as just this is the, you know, Walmart's really the only company I'm going to look at and I'm just going to compare Walmart to Walmart, which is you need to do that so that you can see how they're doing themselves, but you also still have to compare it to other people and take that into consideration, whether it's the S&P 500, whether it's another competitor in their field, or whether it's the whole market economy. Now, do you have to be an expert in all three of those areas? I, I don't think so, but you at least need to be aware of those so that you have something to compare it to because growth in and of itself is not, you know, if Walmart is growing, that's great, but if nobody else is recognizing it, then it's not going to help you in the long run. Does that make sense? Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook, 
at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. I think something maybe we should have talked about in the beginning. It's like if you're as a disclaimer, when you're looking at growth, it really depends on when you're what your start period is and what your end period is, because you can manipulate those time periods and make the growth picture look a lot better or a lot worse. Mm-hmm. I liked the example you gave about the retail thing because uh, to your point, Q4 is, is huge for a lot of retailers. Uh, and if you're comparing, let's say from Q3 to Q4, you're like, wow, great growth. And again, you're not, you don't get the context of that and you're not really, it, to your to your point, you know, you, you kind of said that already. You're not, because, because that time period, maybe it's better to look in this specific case at, what did the Q4 do this year versus last year? And then again, like you said, comparing it to peers. Um, so definitely when you're looking at growth, be careful and kind of make sure the start period and the end period makes sense. <laughs> Which is another reason why I like to use averages. So kind of extending on what, what Graham said on 10 year growth, something I'll like to do is instead of picking one year and I'm like, maybe I, I like this year and I want to compare it to that year. I like to take averages. So if I average out two or three years and then I compare that, let's say you fast forward seven years and then you take a two or three year group and then, and then you run a, a growth calculation based on those. I think that can be very, very helpful in kind of smoothing out some of the cyclical nature of, of it or even just the natural fluctuations that happen as you run a business. And I think that can be another tip that people can kind of take away when, when they're looking at growth. Um, let's really think about the starting and the end point and make sure we're not cherry picking a time period to, to massage the numbers to make it look like a good investment or not. The, la- the, the, the second thing I wanted to talk about that you said, Dave, and then we'll move on to what you were talking about, large cap, small cap. When you mentioned, let's say Walmart grow grew, but but nobody recognized it, the market didn't recognize it. Over the long run, it's not going to help your performance. Taking the flip side of that too is growth is not a, a magic fix all be all that I think a lot of Wall Street tends to think it is, and at least they vote with their dollars that way. So I love using the example of some of the tech companies in 1999. And if you look at where they were 1999, you compare it to, uh, say, 10 years later, 2009, and then you can even go 15 years, 20 years. A lot of those, because they were trading at such high valuations, they didn't see their stock price recover to those 1999 highs, even though the business inside the business, um, they saw, you know, maybe double digit earnings growth or double digit book value growth or, or both, right? The business as a whole in every aspect grew, but the stock did not because if you bought near the, near the top, near the high, um, valuations were so expensive that you, you, a company would have needed superhero growth for those valuations to continue. So that's why when we talk about or I guess when I talk about that fine balance between the valuation, the growth picture, and the qualitative, and then we're not even talking about dividends. But when you start to think of the balance of all of those considerations around the stock, you always want to consider that you're not paying too high a valuation because that can definitely happen and growth does not 
fix all problems. Uh, I guess to your final question about small cap, large cap, I think it does make sense, right? If, if a company like take Amazon, for example, I don't know what their market cap is now, um, if they hit 1 trillion or, or not, but you know, a, a company like that, they're not going to grow 10%, right? How can you, how, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. They're not going to 10 X from where they are now. How can a, a company go from 1 trillion to 10 trillion while the U S GDP is, is at like what? 25 trillion or something like there, there's just no way that either the government will allow a business to get that big, that it makes up half the economy. That sounds like a monopoly to me, or even that they have the capacity to grow at that scale. Now, obviously, they could grow 10x over a very long time period, but also GDP would have to grow and all those sorts of things. So as you get to the higher market cap numbers, yeah, there, there's, there becomes a ceiling to growth, and that can definitely affect how you're trying to project growth into the future. That being said, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. So when I think of a company, and, and I'll, I'll give this company away because it's already it's already returned so much from the e-leather portfolio that it's, it's, it's so overvalued. Like it's not going to be a strong buy anytime soon. Um, but that's Cisco. When I bought Cisco, they had great growth numbers. They are at 211 billion and they still have great growth. So there's lots of other examples of that too, where these huge market cap companies are either able to match the S and P or even outperform the S and P with growth. Uh, even though there are such a massive size. So yes and no, maybe a frustrating answer for some people to hear, but maybe overall, yeah, I would kind of prefer a smaller cap because conceptually it makes more sense that they could grow uh, at a bigger rate. But you know, there's risks with that too, right? A smaller company might see a big competitor come in and totally wipe them out because the big competitor has more resources at the same time, some of the best stocks we've ever seen of all time started at such small amounts. And so when they really became huge forces in the economy, that's why their the growth for shareholders was just obscene. So yes sir, yes and no, kind of not black or and white, maybe a little shade of gray. That's how I would think about. And I guess it wouldn't be as much of a factor as far as where's the market capitalization at rather than it's probably affecting me with a bias somehow versus like actually being beneficial towards results. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I like the explanation. I think that to me makes sense. So I, I would agree with what you're saying. So I think that's a, a good way to look at it. Uh, one other thing that I guess I wanted to throw at you. So we're, we're talking about earnings growth and we're talking about book growth, is there anything else besides those two things that you consider when you're thinking about growth or do you think about revenue growth, uh, dividend growth? Do, do those enter the, the, the sphere of what you would consider growth? Yep. Perfect question. And, and you answered your own question. So revenue growth, <laughs> revenue growth is good, obviously. And um, it's a lot easier to grow your earnings when your revenue is also growing. And then dividend growth, I think that's, you know, with all my emphasis on drip, I think that's kind of kind of obvious. Um, when you think of like some of the other metrics I look at, like cash, 
that can fluctuate from year to year. And I don't really consider that concerning if it's not growing over time, because you have to think cash is more like an emergency fund for these companies. So that can kind of go where it wants. Um, but yeah, you want to see uh, dividend growth along with the earnings growth and the book value growth. And I think it, it kind of leads to the last point of this I wanted to say. And I think Benjamin Graham really, again, I'm going to quote him from security analysis. He he really puts this, I found it actually shocking to be honest, like uh, with all his focus on, on, on the balance sheet and, and some of the, a lot of the other stuff he talks about, this little sentence here and the fact that it's, it's just kind of buried and, and he, he talks about it in the rest of the chapter and then he doesn't, I don't remember him talking about it in the intelligent investor. And so, you know, it, it makes me question whether this statement is still rings true for him or not, but I'm just going to read it. He says profitability ratios, the best gauge of the success of an enterprise is the percentage earned on its invested capital. So that's quite a large claim. Um, you know, return on invested capital, we've talked about. Uh, if you go back in the archives, you look at like return on equity. I think that would be a good one to to review if you want more insight on that. It's it's They're all kind of the same. They're all calculating a very similar thing, return on invested capital, return on equity. Uh, you're basically looking at how efficient a company is with with what they have, right? And so he kind of reinforces this back to that example where he's looking at a side by side between the two companies. He says, you know, he looks at the growth and I believe the growth for both was kind of the same, but then he also looked at the profitability ratios and he found that from a profitability standpoint, one had like uh, a doubling of the profit margin versus the other. So they were competitors in the same industry one had twice, you know, it was like a 6% profit margin versus like a 3% profit margin. And so he he kind of said that like that higher profit margin for them being in the same industry is probably, probably means the business is better because there's got to be a reason for it. Either for one, they're good at keeping costs low, which I think is kind of a downside because I think any company can cut costs. And so that wouldn't be something that I would, kind of hope for but he says like maybe there's something inside the business that just makes them more efficient as far as like maybe an intangible maybe they have a brand value that's that's more valuable and they don't have to spend as much in marketing in order to get some amount of profits or you know some patent or just there's just some inherent advantage competitive advantage within the business that makes this one better than another one and so he he used that side by side example to show, again going back to this growth is is a balance of a lot of different factors, that actually from a valuation standpoint, the company with the lower profit margin was a better intrinsic value kind of deal, but the one with higher profit margins, like the the difference in valuation wasn't big enough where Graham would have wanted the cheaper one, and so he said how the more the slightly more expensive one had better profit margins there was similar growth and i believe similar return on um invested capital on them but there was that one factor that really you know a big difference right i think we're talking about a doubling versus you know it's not like this was 3.5% versus 3.3 it was a significant difference and so he kind of showed that as an example 
looked forward and showed how this stock did a lot better than that stock. And so I think that's kind of a final thing we can think of. You know, you think of the long-term growth, you think of some of the other growth metrics, and then you want to also think about profitability, efficiency, and yada, yada, yada. And I think I, I kind of brushed over the revenue growth a little bit, but kind of going back to this profitability ratio, if you think of a profit margin, um, if your revenue is not growing, because a profit margin is just how much in profit did you make and how much in revenue did you have to have to bring in that profit? So I have five customers, they pay me 50 bucks. It cost me $10 to pay my employees. My profit was 40 bucks. That's the profit margin between 40 and 50. So can you imagine trying to grow profits if your revenue is, is going down? It's going to be very hard. And if your revenue continues to go down, that's unsustainable. You can't you can't get so efficient at, at a point you're going to max out the efficiency and you're going to have to increase that revenue again. So uh, I think declining revenues is kind of a red flag. I think obviously not being able to raise the dividend is a red flag. Obviously, we've talked about negative earnings and um, high debt as being a red flag in the past. So I would avoid the red flags maybe based on if you're going to follow what Benjamin Graham says, maybe you focus on profitability, kind of efficiency ratios, and like a very long 10-year time period. Maybe something else that I said kind of catches your eye, or maybe somebody that um, you read on in the future says something that really makes sense to you with growth. you know, Or maybe even with every stock you pick, there's going to be, and that's actually kind of what I hope, there's going to be a different growth story reasoning behind it as long as you're in that balance and from a whole picture kind of holistic perspective things are generally good then i i really think that growth becomes a complementary piece and the stuff that we normally talk about margin of safety emphasis on the safety uh having a long-term mindset dollar cost averaging reinvesting your dividends diversification all those things i think are are a bigger part those are like the the entree and then i think growth becomes kind of dessert but you know i think you, that being said i think growth is obviously necessary so you definitely want to take it into consideration but don't get too stressed out about it don't have so many ideas on it that you're paralyzed because one stock didn't have something from a growth perspective that you like to see. No stock is going to have every single metric you want to look at perfectly. And so I think there's some beauty in that and that makes the stock market uncertain as it is. And that can also create opportunity. So um, maybe just keep all of that in mind and hopefully you learn something about growth today. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion on growth today. I hope you enjoyed Andrew's dissertation to us about growth and all of his thoughts on that. I thought that was fantastic. I uh, especially liked his last comment that he made about no stock that you're going to find is going to have every perfect metric that you're looking for. Try not to find everything perfect and have that paralyze you before you make an investment decision. Uh, remember, you need to buy stocks to be in the stock market to make money. So without any further ado, going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys have a great weekend. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers 
in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.